You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Today we are capping off the four-week series that Josh started uh, four weeks ago uh, called Simple Gospel. And it's been ta- we've been talking about decluttering our faith and returning to the essentials, ter- talking about the basics of what it means to follow Jesus. And hasn't this been a, a phenomenal series? Like being in the Gospels, what is Jesus calling us to do? How is he calling us to respond to the beauty of the gospel? And today we are talking about one more essential component of what it means to follow Jesus. And this is one that kind of rubs us the wrong way. Uh, It's one that we, um, our hearts and souls truly desire and that we want, and yet we often reject or shy away from or neglect in our lives. And that is the shift from having a me faith to a we faith, to community, to family. In today's Western world, we live in one of the most individualistic societies that has ever existed uh, on planet Earth. And America might be the pinnacle of that radical individualism. Uh, We often put uh, the benefit of ourselves above others. We look to satisfy our own comforts above all else, often um, sacrificing for me, myself, and I. Uh, we look for our individual achievements, goals, individual rights, and autonomy above all else, um, often sacrificing the greater good for that of our own. Uh, and that's not like necessarily the rest of the world, and that's definitely not like the culture that Jesus grew up in. Uh, unlike many other warm climate cultures in the South and the East that are more communal, interdependent, we as Americans opt for the independent and individual. And when it comes to solving problems, we do it the American way. We don't dare ask for help, we do it ourselves, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps because we're lone rangers out here in the wild west of individualism. And this type of radical individualism is really kind of new within the experiment, uh, is an experiment within human history. It's only been able to be this way because of modern technological advances as we've gone on. Think about it, you don't have to interact with anybody You could be at home, you could have Amazon, anything you want to your house, your groceries to your house, you could work from home. Uh, You have endless entertainment at the tips of your fingers from your house, you never have to leave, right? You got everything you need there because you're so independent. But how do you think this experiment is working out for us? How do you think, not good, That's, that's a great answer. How do you think, you know, radical individualism, what are the effects of that? I think we've seen some very negative side effects to that. Um, Not simply just the selfishness and pursuit of our own good above all else, but we've seen this effect of extreme loneliness and isolation as a result of our radical individualism. For instance, 2017, the former US Surgeon General declared that we have an epidemic of loneliness. So that was before the pandemic, okay? This is not a result of that. This was something that preceded that and was probably made worse by it. 2018, the UK appointed their Minister of Loneliness. Uh, According to a report by Cigna and Kaiser Family Foundation, 46% of American adults reported feeling lonely at least some of the time. 
Uh, so almost half of people feeling lonely. 22% often or always feel lonely or isolated. And then when it comes to Gen Z, 30% said they always feel lonely or isolated. And the research has found that Gen Z is the loneliest generation, um, sometimes called the lonely generation. Uh, and maybe that's you here this morning. Maybe you're uh, high school, college, fresh out of college, and you feel that. Uh, you have experienced that side effect of our individualism. But there's actually a side effect to that side effect. The loneliness is not something just mental or emotional, but it actually affects our whole being, our physical. David Garland, who uh, is commentating on the passage we're in today, he says, studies have shown that isolation of individuals is correlated with a whole array of problems, such as physical illness, suicide, psychiatric hospitalization, alcoholism, difficult pregnancies, depression, anxiety, child abuse, family violence, proneness to accidents. So the reality is that the loneliness actually has side effects on our daily life, our physical health. For instance, you may have heard this one before. Um, Loneliness and isolation actually has the same harmful effect to your body as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's it's like, how about the people who are smoking and lonely? That's a bad combo. You don't want to be doing that. Uh, That is like this loneliness actually affects our whole being. And so it seems that our radical individualism has come at a cost and and we're paying for it. Take, for instance, um, this idea of individualism not only being something that's out there, right? Oh, that's in the culture, that's in the world, that's not necessarily a part of the church. Well, actually, that radical individualism has invaded the church, and really the way, the American way has become part of the way of the American church, and that has come into our faith. That has caused us to have this me faith over a we faith. Take, for instance, um, having this idea of having a personal relationship with God. Now, partly, that's a good idea, okay? It's like a reaction to um, Christendom, people growing up in more Christian cultures. Maybe they grew up in a family that is Christian, and so, oh, automatically, I must be a Christian. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Are you taking your faith into your own hands and having uh, personal ownership of your faith? That was the idea, and that's a good idea. But what we've done is said, actually, it's only about me and my personal relationship with God, and it has nothing to do with anybody else. But is that what Jesus taught? Is that what he modeled for us? Man, it's, it's not easy, but it's also not optional. Being a solo disciple is not a category of Christian that Jesus offers to us. There's no Han Solos in the faith. Um, he doesn't offer us that lone ranger, lone wolf mentality as a disciple. Think about it. How are we supposed to fulfill the Great Commission if we're an island, right? Go and make disciples and invite them into nothing, right? Like that doesn't quite make sense. We need each other to live out the gospel, uh, and we cannot do it alone. So how do we shift from that me faith to that we faith? That's, that's what we're going to be looking at today. So open up your Bibles uh, to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be looking at what Jesus has to say about all this. Before we get into that, let me set the scene for what's been going on in the gospel of Mark so far. So Jesus is doing his thing. He's healing. 
He's preaching, he's teaching, he's casting out demons. That's just what he does, all right? Uh, Mark 1, 14 through 15, this is the beginning of the gospel. Mark, this really sets up the rest of the whole gospel. It says, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's your simple gospel right there. In Mark 3, uh, our chapter we're in today, we see that hundreds and hundreds of people are coming to Jesus to hear him teach, preach, uh, to uh, experience healing from him. People are coming to get demons cast out. Like everybody is coming to Jesus. He is overwhelmed with the amount of people that are coming to him. It says he can't even eat. Uh, he has to get on a boat to get out in the water to be, even be able to teach because they're trying to like crush him. Like everybody is coming to Jesus. And before uh, in our chapter, it says that even the demons know his identity. When they see him, they say, you're the son of God. You're the son of God. And they're cowering before him. And that identity, his divine identity, is, again, a, an essential part of this simple gospel. And then Jesus appoints his 12 disciples as 12 apostles. This is what it says. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him. He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So why did he appoint them? It says, so that they might be with him and they might go do ministry. And that's like our discipleship model and path here is to, to be with Jesus, uh, to become like him. That's what it means to follow your rabbi. And then to do what he did, to do the ministry he calls us to do. That's his model. Did he go it solo? Did he go it by himself? No, he actually formed this ragtag group of 12 disciples, apostles who followed him around everywhere in community. That's his model for us. And then we get to the precursor passage to the passage we're in today. Uh, this really sets up what Jesus is going to teach us. Um, it says, this is, this is about Jesus' family. Uh, so it says, then he went home, Jesus went home, and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. He's out of his Mind. So Jesus comes home, and it's not referring to his hometown of Nazareth. It's referring to Capernaum. This is where he has set up shop now for his ministry. This is headquarters for his ministry. This is where he moved to. This is where he lives. Uh, and so Jesus is, again, preaching, teaching to the crowds. They're filling this house. It's like sardines packed to the brim in this place. And this news gets back to his family that all this ministry, hundreds, thousands of people flocking to Jesus, and they're like, this is, this is enough. We're going to go to Capernaum and bring him back. And that is no small commitment, okay? This isn't just like jotting over to the next neighborhood and being like, come back here, Jesus. No, this is 23, at least 23 miles apart, Nazareth to Capernaum, okay? This is like how long it would take to walk there. At least that many hours, okay? That's like a, almost a full marathon of walking. So we're talking like a two to four day round trip here. This is a commitment. And why are they doing this? It's because they think he's out of his mind, his own family. They think he is losing it. He's a lunatic. Or is he Lord? They've heard the reports about his ministry. They're not supportive. They are cynical. They're not going to rally around him. They're going to round him up. Bring him home. Stop this nonsense with all this 
ministry, all these people. Come back home. Do what you did before. Be a construction worker. Do your carpentry. You know, stay out of the limelight. Now, if Jesus was a normal rabbi, then his family actually would have been so thrilled by that. Because uh, being a rabbi in that Jewish culture was like, it was of the highest, right? Like highest esteemed person is a rabbi. So this would have brought great honor to Jesus's own family. And in an honor-shame culture, like that's the best thing you can do is bring honor to your family name. However, is Jesus a normal rabbi? Not at all. Uh, in fact, the other rabbis, the Pharisees, other Jewish leaders, it says that they are there, right before our passage, it says they are there in Capernaum uh, to discredit his ministry. To, they, they're, calling, they're saying, hey, Jesus is demon-possessed. That's why he's able to do all this stuff. Like, that's what they're saying about his ministry. It says they are there to destroy it. And in Matthew's version, it says they're there to kill him. Do you think Jesus' family wants to be associated with that? No, they don't. And in fact, they might be a little bit terrified by that, feeling some of those pressures in their hometown of Nazareth, this news getting back about Jesus, maybe even some of the synagogue leaders there saying, why don't you go over there and get him back here and stop all this nonsense? And in a, in a chapter later, it says that when Jesus goes to Nazareth and he's teaching in his home synagogue, they're amazed by him, right? They're like, wait, isn't this like the son of Mary? Like, what, what's, what's the deal here? This doesn't make any sense. He's so educated. This is incredible. This is beautiful teaching. And then it says they try to kill him. Like, that's wild, right? Like, these people do not accept him or honor him. And so Jesus' family goes to Capernaum. They're not there to support him, but to seize him. Uh, the Greek word here is kriteo. Say it with me. Kriteo. One more time. Kriteo. Okay, you do it for Josh, but not for me. So um, it means this, to seize forcibly, to arrest. So they are there in Capernaum to slap the cuffs on Jesus and to bring him home. And this is Jesus's response. It's not maybe what you would uh, expect. So Mark 31 through 32 says, his mother, his brothers came standing outside. They sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So when Jesus' family shows up, this is not just like your average two and a half person household in America. Okay, Jesus has at least that we know of six half siblings. Okay, so he's got four brothers. It says he has at least two sisters and then his mother Mary. So that's like seven people standing outside, knocking on the door, trying to get in this place to go get Jesus. But the place is crowded, right? So they can't even make their way. Somebody finally hears, oh, wait, this is Jesus' family? Okay, they make their way through the sardines crowd. They get to Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, your family is here, which is kind of like a little bit rude because what's Jesus doing? He's teaching. It's like, bring, bring, mom. Not while I'm preaching. You know, like, <laughs> it's one of my worst nightmares. Um, so the place, like, quiets down, right? It quiets down, and they're like, okay, well, is, is Jesus going to leave, or is he going to stay? And it would have made, made perfect sense to them if Jesus did go. Because in that culture, your family of origin, your biological family, it's of highest importance. You obey. You do what they tell you to do. So they're wondering, what is Jesus going to do? And this is how Jesus 
responds. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus does not respond how you would expect. Uh, you would expect him to be like, one second, mom, I'm coming, right? Doesn't say that, doesn't acknowledge his family. He's, he actually looks at his disciples and he asks them a rhetorical question. And he says, who is my family? And they're probably thinking, wait, have you lost your mind, Jesus? You don't know your own family? That doesn't make any sense, right? Who is my family? And he points directly at them and he says, it's you. You, my disciples, those of you who are doing God's will, you're my brother, sister, mother. You are my family. And this is a radical redefinition of family and being a part of the family of God. Because in that first century culture, your biological family was of the highest importance. Uh, your biological family determined your identity, your reputation, your social, economic, religious status. And so your biological family was of highest importance. And yet Jesus says there's something even greater. There's something even higher. He redefines the family, talking about his disciples being his family. Did you know that if you're a follower of Jesus, you've actually been adopted as a son or a daughter into God's own family? That's part of the gospel right there. Let me read you this beautiful passage from the Apostle Paul talking about this. He says, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law, God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba, Father. Abba, it's like, it's like a little child saying Dada, right? Abba, Father. And now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his Air. What a passage. That's our reality right here and now, that we've been adopted as sons and daughters into God's own family through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. When you went into that courtroom, you weren't condemned because of your sins. Actually, what happened was you were adopted legally. It's as if the judge came down and gave you a big bear hug and said, welcome to the family. That's what happened in that courtroom. If you've yet to become a part of God's family, can I just tell you, you're invited. Like you, you can become part of God's family today because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. And we want to talk to you more about that. Uh, we'd love to have you sign up for baptism. Um, that's one of the ways Jesus calls us to respond to the gospel. And there's no greater joy than getting to witness that, than getting to witness somebody entering into the family of God. And I have good news that we have several people who are waiting on the sign-up list right now. 
And we have just to pick a date. That's all that's left to do. So if you want to sign up for baptism, do that today. Mark 3.35, Jesus again, he says, whoever does the will of God, that's my brother, sister, and mother. He is my brother, sister, and mother. That's my family. Now, I don't know about you, but that could potentially sound a little bit more like works salvation, right? But is that what Jesus says? Does he say, well, if you obey God's will, then you will be a part of my family. If you obey God's will, then you get to be my brother, sister, and mother. No, that's not what he says. He says, whoever does this is, already is in my family. What he's saying is that obedience to God's will is a posture that those who are already in God's family take towards God and his will. Obedience is what characterizes those who follow Jesus. That's what he's talking about. There's no other entrance into God's kingdom except through Jesus' death, burial, resurrection on the cross. And obedience to God looks like being with Jesus, becoming like him, and doing what he has called you to do. When you look at that word throughout um, the New Testament, it shows up like God's will for you is your sanctification. And you're like, wait, I thought God's will for me was to move somewhere else. Well, maybe there's like, there's some specifics to God's will about your life, but he also is generally just calling you to obedience to him, your sanctification, being with Jesus, becoming like him, and then doing what God has called you to do. So obedience to God's will is a characterization, a posture of those who follow Jesus. Now notice, does Jesus say, those who do God's will are my personal disciples that have absolutely nothing to do with one another? No, it it doesn't say that, right? Like those who do God's will are part of my family, not saved into an individualistic, private faith, but a communal, a collective, a corporate faith. When we're saved, we're simultaneously familified. Is that a word? No. (laughs) It's not. But this man, Joseph Hellerman, in his book, When the Church Was a Family, coined it saying, just as we were justified with respect to God the Father upon salvation, so our relationship with God, so also we are familified with respect to our brothers and sisters in Christ And this familification is no less a positional reality than our justification. There's some theological terms for you. (laughs) So if you're a disciple of Jesus, that means you're in the family. You have now brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is how we relate to one another. That's a theological reality that's already true. Are we going to live that out practically? So this is how we move from a me faith to a we faith, is when we see each other, when we live, and when we function as the family that we already are. And that's our main takeaway from today, is to function like the family that we already are. Maybe you're wandering around, looking around the room, wait, are we family? If you're in Christ, yes, you are. The question is, are we going to put the needs, the interests of one another, serve one another, love one another like family, put that above our radical individualism? In 2021, right at the beginning, it's a rough time. It was the most beautiful time and the most rough time. 
my kitchen flooded two times, all right? And uh, that was two weeks after we had our first child. So our kitchen was torn apart for five months as we have this newborn. And I'm a little bit losing my mind. Is he out of his mind? Yes, he is. Um, And I got to tell you, I could not have survived that season without my church family, without you all, and especially without my life group who came around us, giving us meal after meal, Uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ coming over, ripping up floors with me, swinging hammers, um, washing stuff, like watching our kid, like all the things that a family would do, they came over and helped us with. And we don't have biological family here. We don't. And so really, the church truly is our family. We could not have survived that month without the family of God. Did you know that we are family is actually one of our core values here at Hill City Church? When we established Hill City five years ago this September, that's one of the core values that we put into who are we as a church? We are family. And let me read to you the little description that Josh wrote out. I didn't write this, okay? Christ created the church to be a family of believers. We want to intentionally build community with one another on Sundays and throughout the rest of the week. We will show grace and reconcile when we have conflict. I had some of you until that line, right? (laughs) We believe that we are better together. Yeah, family is hard. I mean, you look at your own biological family, you're like, there's some tough times. There's some awkwardness. There's some tension. But that's family. That's how you live it out, is you show grace and you reconcile. That's part of what it means to be the family. But can I encourage you for a moment? I think our church actually does live out this core value. Like our church actually pursues community, uh, is giving, is selfless, servant-hearted, looking to the needs of one another. Here's a crazy stat. 421 people are currently in life groups. Uh, For a church of our size, that's pretty amazing. Like 421 people are committed to week in and week out, meeting in homes and coffee shops here at the church, serving one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, eating meals together, laughing together, crying together, going on trips together. There was a group that just went to Cabo last week, apparently. I'm like, how do I get in that life group? Um, But that's what we do. We pray together. uh, We're family together. And that's, that's an amazing statistic right there because people are actually living that core value out. We are family. We're not created to be alone. When we were saved, we were familified. We were given brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, grandparents in the faith. Let me tell you about a grandparent in the faith. When my daughter was just a year old, Uh, My wife was working at the time. She was a teacher, and she still had uh, several months left before summer. And uh, our daycare up and closed. They're like, hey, you got a few weeks, and we're closing. It's like, wow, that is some really fast news. Uh, So I guess we're going to need to find something else in a matter of a few weeks, which if any of you are parents and try to get into daycares, you know is almost impossible. So I'm like, this is unfortunate. Um, and, but I, I had this weird piece about it, actually. We prayed about it, and it was like, 
God's going to do something. He's going to provide. And the next day, we happen to be, there's all of our life group leaders. Uh, we're getting together. We have um, three meetings together. Uh, right now, we have 80 life group leaders. Amazing. Amazing people stepping up, doing the call. Um, but we were meeting there, and we were just happened to be talking with one of the other life group leaders, saying, yeah, this is the situation. And she's a retiree. And she goes, that's interesting. Why don't I watch her? We're like, oh, we weren't like asking you, like, you don't have to do that. And she's like, let me pray about it. And I, and I want to watch her. I'm like, okay. So she got back to us a few days later and she's like, yep, drop her off at my house on your way to work. And I'll tell you what, with, after like just one week of doing that, my little one-year-old daughter waddling up to her door, just looking at me, bye, Dada, and just <laughs> goes straight inside. Like, couldn't care about me. She loves this lady, right? And she still does. They go to the YMCA. They do swimming together. They do tea parties. Like, she loves this lady. She's really a spiritual grandma here. Yeah, we can clap for that. So that is the family of God. People coming around one another. We have spiritual family, grandparents, mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers in the faith. And when we function as the family that we already theologically are, this is how we not only move from a me faith to a we faith, but we solve and cure the problem of loneliness, of isolation. And maybe you're part of that statistic this morning, that you are feeling lonely and isolated. Can I read to you a beautiful passage of scripture that God wants to speak over you this morning? He says this, let the godly rejoice. Let them be glad in God's presence. Let them be filled with joy. Sing praises to God and to his name. Sing loud praises to him who rides the clouds. His name is the Lord. Rejoice in his presence. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. And catch this line. What does God do? God places the lonely in families. God places the lonely in families. And if you are feeling that way this morning, God declares over you, it's not good for people to be alone. And declares you're not alone. You're part of his family. And more specifically in this context, you're part of the Hill City family. You're not alone. Let me go back to our passage briefly, momentarily. There's this clarification. Maybe that's in some of your minds right now. Is Jesus rejecting his biological family? He is not. He is not wholesale rejecting his family of origin. In fact, he loves his family of origin so much. When Jesus is on the cross, gasping for air, bloodied and hanging, what does he do? He cares for his mother and he makes provisions for her on the spot. He looks at the apostle John and he says, behold, this is your mother. And he looks at his mother and he says, behold, this is your son. And it says, from that day forward, John took Mary into his home and cared for her. So Jesus, oh yeah, he cares about his biological family. In fact, do you know the books of the Bible, Jude? It's a tiny little one chapter letter. And the book of James, right? Jesus' own brothers, they come to follow him. They, 
in this story, they're like, oh, Jesus is being crazy. Let's bring him home. He's out of his mind. When they realize who he actually is upon his death, burial, and resurrection, they follow him with everything and become leaders in the early church. Jesus actually condemns some Pharisees because they don't take care of their parents. And so, yes, our families of origin, our biological families are extremely important to God, but it's not ultimate in the terms of our eternal family of God that he is building. And the reality is that some of you may have even been rejected by your families of origin because of your decision to follow Jesus. Some of you have experienced that. And many of the first century Christians who would have read this passage would have been so comforted because some of those, many of those first generation Christians were rejected by their families, whether they were Jewish, whether they were Gentile, Greek, many of them rejected by their families. And they realized, oh, we're actually a part of a new family in God. I used to work with this uh, guy who was previously a youth pastor in East Boise. And he was telling me about a student who started coming to his youth group, a freshman, and coming with some of his friends. And slowly but surely, this young man decided he wanted to give his life to Christ. And he did it at youth group. And he goes home that night, and he tells his family what happened. His family is LDS and did not take kindly to this news. They called their bishop over. And the bishop tried to get this young man to basically recant and be like, stop this nonsense, you know, undo that, basically. And the young man said, no, I am following Jesus. And what happened that night is that was the last night that he spent in his own home. He was kicked out. But there's another family in the church who became his family for the next three years of high school and basically unofficially adopted him as one of their own. That's the family of God. That's the family of God. And sometimes obedience to God will look like disobedience to your family of origin. Not always, but sometimes when it comes to making a decision between obeying God's will and the will of your family. But if that is your story here this morning, and maybe you've experienced that type of rejection from your own family. Can I give you some beautiful words from Jesus that will encourage you this morning? This is his promise to you. He says, everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. That's a promise from Jesus. And you're going to experience 100 times as much in return of what you give up, including family. So being a part of the family of God is not simply an obligation, but this is a beautiful blessing, right? And let me give you some practical steps for going further, for functioning as a part of God's family. Five quick practices. Number one is this, to become a partner. So what we call our members here at Hill City Church. 
Uh, and if Hill City Church isn't your home church, that's fine. But we encourage you to wherever you call home uh, to plant deep roots there, to attend, to give, to serve, to build a family there with those people. But if this is your church home and you're not a partner yet, we encourage you to take that next step in digging deep roots into this community. And there's really only three things. Like, there's not some crazy long class or a year-long process. Really, all it is is you go on our website, there's three, or there's a, a next step video that tells you all about Hill City Church. It's 15 minutes. And then there's three commitments. Number one, uh, that you'd participate in worship gatherings, coming together uh, on Sundays, attending, giving, serving, then participating in a life group or men's, women's, college group, whatever that looks like, some form of a small group, doing life together, and then personal spiritual practices, like doing this, uh, uh, doing this, following Jesus on your own every single day uh, of your life. Those are the three commitments. Um, and for those of you who are partners, our next meeting, family meeting, is May 28th. So that's coming up. But we'd encourage you to take that next step, becoming a partner. And then I would not be the life group's pastor if I didn't say, join a life group. All right? Come on. I'm encouraging you. Uh, usually this is about 8 to 12 people or so who meet in homes throughout the week. And just like I described, like how my life group has really been my family. That's what we want for these people coming together to eat together, to pray together, to grow deep in faith together, to help one another out. And the reality is, in a congregation of our size, we can't get to know every single individual on a very deep level. But you can do that in a small group, in life groups. Uh, one of the needs right now is actually more life group leaders. And maybe God's putting that on your heart uh, to take that step to invite people into your home or to a coffee shop or something each week and to be a leader, uh, to form these communities, these small group families. Uh, and we have a life group leader meeting that's coming up specifically for that in just a few weeks that's on your handout. You can find out more about that. Um, number three is to serve your church family. This is one of the most tangible ways we can live out this idea of being familified. Uh, 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10 says, most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Who has God uniquely gifted you to serve? How has he called you to serve? Who can you bring a meal to? Who can you serve? Who can you visit? Who can you invite into your home this week? Uh, when we had our son three months ago, we had uh, this uh, gal come and visit, or, uh, bring us a meal. And she was telling us about how she did this with one of her coworkers recently, who's not a Christian. And she's like, hey, do you have like a meal train or something? I could sign up, bring you a meal. And her coworker's like, what is that? She's like, I, I don't know what that's about. And she's like, I guess maybe that's like a Christian thing. I don't know. Everybody in our church just brings each other food when things happen, good or bad. Um, that's just something we do. We serve one another. So serve your church family, 
pray for your church family. This is one of the most important things we can do for one another. This is one of the most meaningful times of our life group each week is praying for over our uh, requests that we have. Um, how can you pray for your family this week? Uh, one of the things that my wife started doing is texting out prayers to people who are in um, need. Right? Uh, that's something you can do. How is God calling you to serve? Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for who? For all the Lord's people. And then lastly, invite others into the family. This is not a closed family. The doors are wide open. Who do you know in your life that needs that invitation to receive the simple gospel. Uh, there's a young man I, I was teaching at Boise Bible College a few weeks ago. And I was teaching an evangelism class. And I said, you know, what's the story of evangelism from your life? He's like, well, a few months ago, my grandpa was on his deathbed. And he said he was not a believer. Uh, in fact, he had some pretty bad experiences with uh, people who called themselves Christians and uh, you could say that um, there was a lot of uh, cluttering around um, the gospel. And what he did is, is he's sitting next to his grandpa in the hospital. He breaks out 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, this is the gospel, grandpa, that Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel. And his grandpa says, that's it? That's, that's it? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, well, if I knew that's all it was, then yes. And on that day, I mean, we're talking uh, hours and days before his passing, he became a member of the family of God. Who can you invite in to the family? Who's God calling you to extend that invitation to? The reality is we're actually a part of this international multi-ethnic, eternal family. And can I give you a picture of heaven? This is from the Apostle John. He shows us what it's going to look like when we gather together every tribe, tongue, and nation who follows Jesus, and we worship at the throne of God. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. And it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Amen, church? Amen. Let's stand together. Let's worship. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.